The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. This hour of the Costa Report is brought to you by IBM. Big data at the speed of business. Welcome to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and thank you for joining me for another two hours of Straight Talk Radio. I want to welcome members of our armed forces who are joining us from remote outposts today. Thank you for taking time to join us on the Internet. In just a moment, the president of the National Iranian American Council, Mr. Trita Parsi, will be here to explain the complex, often misunderstood relationship between Israel, the United States, and Iran, and why resuming relations between the United States and Iran may hold the key to greater stability in the Middle East. So hang on to your hats. We're in for an exciting hour as we navigate the confusing world of propaganda and facts concerning modern Iran. But before Mr. Parsi joins us, as is my custom each week, let me tell you a little about his background. Trita Parsi was born in Iran. His father was jailed under the reigns of the Shah and Ayatollah Khomeini. And at the age of four, Parsi escaped with his family to Sweden. Parsi has two master's degrees, one in international relations from Uppsala University and one in economics from the Stockholm School of Economics. He earned his Ph.D. in international relations from Johns Hopkins. Parsi's hands-on experience began when he joined the Swedish mission to the United Nations in New York. He worked with the Security Council and with the General Assembly's Third Committee, which addressed human rights violations in Iran, Afghanistan, and Iraq. He later joined Johns Hopkins, George Washington University, and Georgetown University as an adjunct professor and became a policy fellow at the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars in Washington, D.C., In 2002, Parsi founded the National Iranian American Council to encourage engagement between Iran and the United States. I want to also mention that Mr. Parsi is the author of two highly acclaimed books on Iran, Treacherous Alliance, The Secret Dealings of Israel, Iran, and the U.S., and more recently, A Single Roll of the Dice, Obama's Diplomacy with Iran. It's my pleasure to welcome to the program President of the National Iranian American Council, Mr. Trita Parsi. Thank you for joining us today, Mr. Parsi. Thank you so much for having me. Now, I think maybe the best place to begin our conversation today is is to ask you to explain why you feel that better relations between the United States and Iran would contribute to stability in other countries throughout the Middle East. Well, just take a look at the situation in Iraq right now uh, with ISIS and uh, the instability that is causing. Uh, Here is a situation in which the United States and Iran actually have very strong common interests. There are good indications that behind the scenes they have actually collaborated and coordinated certain things. But had they extended collaboration and not chosen to compete in Iraq against each other, Uh, and instead collaborated with each other. First of all, I don't think ISIS would ever have managed to reach this point that they have right now, which they control large parts of uh, that country. Moreover, today, the United States would have had a much better coalition to deal with ISIS than the current one that the president has put together, which includes a lot of states that are actually um, have been quite involved in one way or another supporting ISIS. Um, So in almost every conflict in the region because of this overarching competition between the United States and Iran, conflicts have become parts of that competition and have been exasperated and made it more difficult to resolve them, even though ultimately it's actually been to the detriment of both the United States and Iran. Now, when you use the word competition, what do you mean, a competition between the United States and Iran? Well, the competition is a, it's a rivalry for power. It's a rivalry for control. The Iranians have adopted a position in which they are very 
um, comfortable with taking the position of being a challenger of the United States in the region, challenging the American order um, and the, um, uh, the, the equilibrium, the balance of power that the United States prefers in the region. Mm-hmm. At the same time, from the U.S.'s perspective, um, the government in Iran has been treated as illegitimate, has not been included in major um, uh, political bodies in almost every coalition that has been put together. Iran has not been invited to be included. Um, and essentially, there's been a long-standing policy of containing and excluding Iran from the political uh, and economic uh, structures of the region. The Iranians have reacted very negatively to that and actually chosen a path in which they have um, sought to be even more problematic to the United States, and, and by so hoping that they would make the policy of excluding Iran all the more expensive and costly. But what actually has happened is that the more they have um, turned into a troublemaker and a spoiler, the more there has been a sense that the policy of excluding them is justified because of the argument that you don't want to reward bad behavior. But isn't it a normal response to contain and exclude uh, groups that you feel might be an obstacle to progress? Isn't that a normal response? It is. It is, it is a, a perhaps, I don't know if the word normal would be a correct, wor- correct word, but it would be a, a rather common response to that. But I think there's various scenarios in which you have to be very careful about doing that. So, for instance, in the case of Iran and the United States in 1994, uh, the Iranians were problematic. They were very upset that the U.S. had excluded them uh, from the Madrid conference in 1991 and from uh, putting together a new security architecture for the region. And the United States opted to try to create an order in the region that was based on the idea of excluding and containing both Iran and Iraq at the same time. Now, we could point to policies of both the Iranians and the Iraqis to justify that these two countries did not deserve to be part of the larger order and they should be contained and that they were threatful. Well, if there was no opportunity for cooperation, if they were being perceived as being an obstacle to at least getting some partial stability or cooperation, uh, that would be reason to exclude, wouldn't it? Well, let me finish it because actually mm-hmm. in the case of Iran and the United States, there were plenty of opportunities to collaborate and there were even some areas in which the two sides did collaborate. Mm-hmm. The Iranians were actually helpful uh, in, in the first Persian Gulf War. The Iranians made sure that the United States could use Iranian airspace, for instance, for some of its bombings uh, of Iraq in 1991. Yes. They were hoping that this would be rewarded and that because they had been helpful and useful, that the U.S. would bring them um, in from the cold, which did not happen, which the, the result of that is that they became even more negative and problematic. But the point that I'm trying to make is this. The ability of retaining, sustaining an order in the region by excluding two of the most powerful states of that region is extremely costly. Because by excluding them, you give them incentives to sabotage every policy that you have. And because they're powerful, they are also very potent spoilers and saboteurs. And it ended up in a scenario in which the balance of power in the, in the Middle East was only kept at a tremendously high cost for the United States. In yes, well, Germany, as you point out recently, uh, Iran has demonstrated cooperative behavior uh, again as well. Uh, you, in a recent article, pointed out that in the past they've jumped on every opportunity to blast Israel for the treatment of the Palestinians. Yet you, you point to the unusual restraint Iranian leaders have demonstrated recently during this latest outbreak in Gaza. Yes, and, and, and you know, the Iranian posture on, on, on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and on Israel in general has been quite different since uh, Hassan Rouhani won the elections. But let me bring another historical analogy to kind of um, uh, bring the point home. Mm-hmm. After the Second World War, the United States was the driving force of making the argument that if the reaction to Germany after the Second World War would be the same as it was after the First World War. After the First World War, after Germany was defeated, the European powers did everything they could to contain, isolate, sanction Germany. And many historians argue that this led to the Second World War because there was such a revanchist sentiment amongst the Germans as a result of that treatment. Yes. After the Second World War, the United States was the 
forebearer of the argument that we have to integrate Germany. We have to make Germany prosperous and strong and a part of Europe in order to deprive it of any incentives to behave in the manner that it had done in the past. Yeah, excuse me, Mr. Parsi, we have to break, uh, take a hard break here. Uh, when we come back, I'd like to continue that because I think you're drawing a parallel between the isolationist uh, uh, policy we had toward Germany and also Iran. So we're going to take our first scheduled break. When we come back, uh, we'll talk about uh, the parallels between uh, pre-war Germany and Iran. You're listening to the Costa Report. Do you love creating salads as much as you enjoy eating them? Hi, I'm Amy Tobin, cookbook author and culinary expert. Dole inspires fresh and wholesome dishes for any meal with their wide selection of salad blends and all-natural salad kits. From the mild and tender texture of sweet butter lettuce to the crunch of classic romaine sprinkled with colorful shredded carrots and red cabbage, Dole has over 30 salad blends to satisfy every palate. If you're looking for the ultimate in convenience, try Dole's unique salad kit combinations that include farm-fresh lettuces and vegetables, mouth-watering all-natural toppings, and specially made dressings. It's all you need to make a distinctively delicious salad. The possibilities are endless. Visit www.dolesalads.com for recipes and other ideas to feed your culinary imagination. Every day our world gets more complicated. Not only is new information coming at us faster than we can manage, new regulations, technology, and the effects of globalization have made it much more difficult to succeed. That's why I wrote The Watchman's Rattle, a book that, for the first time, explains how complexity makes it hard to separate facts from fiction and eventually causes us to make important decisions based on unproven beliefs. And not just us, our leaders also fall prey to this phenomena. But here's the good news. Once you know the symptoms to watch for, you can safeguard against them. So please, go to RebeccaCosta.com. That's RebeccaCosta.com. And order your copy of The Watchman's Rattle. It only takes a few minutes and the shipping is free. That's RebeccaCosta.com. Do it now. You'll be glad you did. Happy Fall! This is Susan Pappas from the True Olive Connection, inviting you to enjoy our aged balsamic vinegars and extra virgin olive oils daily in our downtown Santa Cruz location. Do you have a soda stream machine? You must try our new white mandarin balsamic for healthy soda alternatives, for healthy no-sugar added flavors to choose from. Bring the kids, they love it! We have new local artisan products to share, as well as our classic staples you all love, like our infused sea salts, pasta sauces, fresh olives, our body care lines, and specifically OHO for anybody who has eczema, dermatitis, and psoriasis. Don't forget your holiday gifts for colleagues, teachers, family, and friends. We have everything you'll need to celebrate your fall holidays at the True Olive Connection at 106 Lincoln Street in downtown Santa Cruz. You've got to go see our newly restyled website at trueoliveconnection.com for recipes, shopping, articles, directions, and more. Opa! Is your computer running real slow like this? Or are you getting the blue screen of death? Do you have to do a restart several times a session? Tired of viruses, spyware, malware, and slow, worthless tech support? Face it, it's too late to download another free PC fix-it program, thinking it'll be restored to out-of-box purity. Oh, no, 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 no. You need the fast, friendly computer pros at User-Friendly Computing. Just drop it off at their office at 505 River Street across from the Gateway Plaza or give them a call at 831-423-9653 and they'll come to you. Mention KSCO and get a free $50 diagnostic. PC or Mac, desktop or laptop, they can do it all at User-Friendly Computing. Call 831 831- Four two three nine six five three. 
Welcome back to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and my guest today is the founder and president of the National Iranian American Council, Mr. Trita Parsi. And before the break, uh, you were speaking to the sanctions and exclusion policies that the U.S. and its allies imposed on Germany, which certainly facilitated an escalation of conflict. And, and I, I believe you were drawing a parallel with some of our current policies toward Iran. Um, yes, and, and then we can draw a parallel to China as well in the sense that when you have a state that is too large to be contained, because the containment of that state in and of itself will be a source of instability, then you have to pursue other options. The Chinese human rights record is not particularly better than many of the states that the United States shuns, but China is simply too big to ignore, so you have to find other ways. And I think we've reached a point in the Middle East, the Obama administration I think is quite clear on this, they want to find a solution to the conflict with Iran. Problem is, it's very difficult to be able to find a solution after 35 years of enmity. There's a lot of hiccups on the Iranian side. There's unfortunately a lot of people on the Iranian side who also prefer to retain and maintain, uh, continue to be in a, a hostile relationship with the United States rather than actually resolving the conflict. Now, uh, we hear a lot about using sanctions to encourage cooperation, uh, but what we rarely hear about is the impact this has to the U.S. economy when we impose sanctions on countries like Iran. And, and you recently pointed out that the U.S. government conducted no studies on how we would be uh, economically affected, and it turns out that uh, two decades of sanctions cost the U.S. between 135 and $175 billion in export revenues to run. Is that right? That is correct. And it's actually a very conservative estimation because this is only measuring the loss of export revenue. Um, there's a lot of other elements of trade that is not included in this. And um, these are quite stunning figures at the end of the day. I don't think there's anyone who with a straight face can say that $175 billion is not a lot of money. When you translate that into the number of job opportunities using the, the government's own me metric to see how many jobs does $1 billion of export revenue support, it shows that over the last 17 years, the United States has lost approximately 1 million lost job opportunities as a result of these sanctions. Now, many people can say, look, the sanctions were effective and they were worth it. I, I, I don't believe they've been particularly successful, but nevertheless. But in order to be able to say they were worth it, you still have to know what the cost was. To say that something was worth it when you don't even know what the cost was, I think is a bit disingenuous. Well, I also think it's disingenuous to say that one action is related to another. Uh, you impose sanctions for a couple of decades. Uh, suddenly, Iran seems as though it would like to open up discussions with the United States, be more cooperative, and is willing to talk about its nuclear ambitions. Um, uh, just because both of those happen doesn't mean one caused the other to occur. The other might have occurred without sanctions. It may have simply occurred because the change in uh, the government in Iran. Isn't that right? Absolutely. I think um, uh, politicians like to make sure that if anything positive happens, they want to say that it was because of their policies. So there's a self-interest here to be able to credit sanctions for um, uh, some of the developments that have happened. But reality is, however, uh, as you mentioned, for instance, this could have happened without the sanctions. In reality, it did happen without the sanctions. There was an offer from the Iranians in 2003 to... Um, uh, limit their enrichment program to no more than um, 3,000 centrifuges. They currently have 19,000 centrifuges. They've grown ex you know, very significantly during the period that the United States imposed sanctions on Iran. They made that offer and, in 2003. Why didn't we accept it? Well, uh, this, uh, this specific, in 2003, it was actually another offer, and the Iranians only had about 164 centrifuges. The Bush administration rejected both the 2003 and 2005 offer because they simply did not want to negotiate with Iran. Back then, the policy of the United States was, or the policy of the Bush administration was, that we do not legitimate, legitimate um, uh, hostile powers by talking to them. If we were to talk to them, that would make them more legitimate. Even if that hostile power is agreeing to limit their nuclear program. Exactly. And as a result, these two opportunities were lost. This is long before 
some of the main sanctions that were imposed in 2010. There were other sanctions on Iran at the time, but those sanctions were not as harmful to the Iranian economy as the sanctions that the Obama administration imposed later in 2010. So before those sanctions, there was actually offers that are more attractive to the U.S. from the U.S. perspective than what is being discussed right now between the Obama administration and the Iranians. And yet, I think yet so many Americans have the impression that sanctions, uh, you know, hurt the, only the country that the sanctions are opposed against and, uh, and, and do little to our own economy, uh, when often they hurt us more than they, they hurt the, the enemy. Or at a minimum, they hurt us a lot, even if it may hurt the other side even more. And the bottom line is that it simply has not been a conversation about what the economic consequences of this is. Part of the reason for that is because Congress loves sanctions. Um, it's very easy for Congress to impose sanctions on state. And, and so sanctions tend to be one of the few foreign policy instruments that Congress has at its disposal. Congress doesn't have a State Department or other type of uh, instruments that they can use for foreign policy making. And as sanctions have grown tremendously in popularity, there's also been uh, an increased neglect of the flip side of it. Not just the fact that sanctions actually don't tend to be particularly successful, there's a very low success rate, but also the fact that it imposes a cost on the sanctioning country that very few people have talked about. Well, if it imposes a cost and it's rarely successful, uh, even when it is successful, you can't necessarily draw a clear cause and effect relationship, as in this case between the sanctions and nuclear cooperation uh, with Iran. Uh, why have they become so popular? Well, as I mentioned, because what else can the uh, Congress do? It doesn't have clear abilities to engage um, in foreign policy making. So uh, sanctions has become one of its main abilities and main tools to make itself very relevant in the foreign policy discussions. What happened to good old diplomacy? <laughs> well, well, one could ask that question because one of the things I think would be very valuable is to really beef up American diplomacy and actually take advantage of the role that members of Congress can play in all of this. But there's a political climate right now that is very, very unhelpful, I would say, in which talking to people who may disagree with you, whether it is in other countries or whether it's even within Congress itself, has become increasingly rare. And that's not a good trend. You're not going to create a better world, a stronger America, by not being able to discuss differences. Are you creating a problem with the State Department if you are a congressman, a senator, and you would like to have discussions with Iran? I would imagine that the State Department would not look favorably on that. It all depends. I mean, on the current circumstances, um, the U.S. the executive branch wants to make sure that they don't lose control of the conversation. Yeah, that's but what I, I mean. Also, there's many cases in which they believe that members of Congress could be very helpful in, in carrying on a side conversation with the other side. Mm -hmm. Well, that's uh, the way diplomacy used to work. I'm not so sure it works that way anymore. But uh, well, but yeah. I'm just old enough to remember the days when we had senators and congressmen that uh, helped out the State Department in, exactly. a, in a very active exactly. way. Now, we have to take another exactly. commercial break. Stay right where you are. We'll be right back with more from Trita Parsi. You're listening to the Costa Report. Big data is changing the way organizations work. From data-driven marketing and ad targeting to the connected car, Big Data is fueling product innovation and new revenue opportunities. It's creating a culture in which business and IT leaders join forces to realize value from all data. They infuse analytics everywhere and make speed a differentiator, gaining competitive advantage from faster, more informed decisions. Leading organizations are creating new business models, developing new roles, and defining new big data architectures, including an infrastructure that can manage and process exploding volumes of structured and unstructured data, in motion as well as at rest, while protecting data privacy and security. Find out how IBM Big Data and Analytics can transform your business. Visit www.ibm.com slash big data today.
Hi, registered pharmacist Ben Fuchs here. I've been studying healthy bodies for 35 years, and what I've got to tell you may shock and surprise you, but if you listen up, it may change your life. Wrinkles and aging skin and thinning skin and youthful skin are largely about the meat, about the connective tissue, muscle tissue matrix, which means we can exercise that too. You know, muscle tissue and connective tissue are responsive to exercise. You build connective tissue, you build muscle tissue when you lift weights. Well, if muscle tissue and connective tissue make up the bulk of your skin, it should make sense that you should be able to exercise your skin too to prevent wrinkles and crow's feet and turkey neck and all the other visible signs or most of the other visible signs of aging. So how do you exercise the skin? Well... There's a couple ways. First of all, you can literally do facial exercises, facial muscle exercises. You can contract your mouth muscles. You can contract your eye muscles. You can open up your eyes really, really wide, and then you can close your eyes slowly and open them and close them. You can move your chewing muscle, and it's one of the biggest, if it's not the biggest muscle in the body. And a lot of stress is held in this masseter muscle. It runs from underneath your ear all on the jawline, and it's where you clench. And it has to do with the stress response. And if you just relax that masseter muscle, you'll find yourself completely relaxing. This is how important working the muscles of the face is. And when it comes to anti-aging and aging, much of the aging of the face is due to these micro-contractions that occur nonstop. Learning how to work with the muscles of the face can go a long way, not only towards helping reduce the, some of the visible signs of aging, but also with reducing the signs and the symptoms of stress. Pharmacist Ben here urging you to go to kscohealth.com to order Beyond Tangy Tangerine, the Healthy Start Pack, and other nutritional supplements that I personally use and recommend. You can purchase these premium quality products at wholesale prices online at kscohealth.com. That's kscohealth.com. I'm the pharmacist that believes that staying healthy and strong is not only about medicine, it's about giving your body the raw materials it needs to do its work. Go to kscohealth.com. Make sure you check out the cool videos, too, at kscohealth.com. That's kscohealth.com. Attention KSEO listeners and Longevity reps. Pharmacist Ben Fuchs will be visiting the Central Coast December 2nd, 3rd, and 4th, and we need your help to make it a success. Our first meeting will be in Monterey County on Tuesday, December 2nd, at the Embassy Suites in Seaside. Wednesday, December 3rd, Pharmacist Ben will be in Santa Cruz County at the Inner Light Ministries in Soquel. Volunteers are needed to staff the event, so please send an email to dm at kseo.com or call 831-218-5726 if interested. Again, December 2nd, Pharmacist Ben Fuchs will be in Monterey County at the Embassy Suites, 1441 Canyon Del Rey Boulevard in Seaside. December 3rd, in Santa Cruz County at the Inner Light Ministries, 5630 Soquel Drive in Soquel. Doors open at 6.30 and show starts at 7 p.m. sharp for both events. If you want to volunteer, send an email to dm at ksco.com. That's dm at ksco.com or call 831-218-5726. That's 831-218-KSCO. Welcome back to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and if you're just joining us, our guest today is Trita Parsi, who was explaining that Iran had proposed limiting their enrichment facilities in 2003, and again in 2005 when the number of facilities was uh, far less than half the facilities uh, that they have today. And and um, um, th- this was uh, years before the most aggressive sanctions were imposed on Iran. So regrettably, uh, we're trying to contain a problem which is significantly much larger than it would have been had we been willing to uh, strike an agreement much earlier. Uh, so, uh, Mr. Parsi, how would you explain uh, what looks to the untrained eye like a recent desire on the part of Iran to build a relationship with both the United States and Israel? Uh, I wouldn't go as far as to say that they're trying to build a relationship with Israel, but they've certainly significantly toned down their rhetoric and their posture and that is related to the fact that they want to improve the relationship with the United States or at a minimum walk away from the brink of war that the United States and Iran found themselves in. The reasons for why this happened is primarily, A, there was an election in Iran in which a team of officials were elected into power who had a long history of trying to find a collaboration between the United States and Iran. The proposals I mentioned to you from 2003 and 2005 were put together by the very same people who got elected last year and who are in charge right now. So these are ideas that they've had for some time, long before the sanctions. Mm-hmm. And because of the elections, they were given another shot to try these ideas. So that's one factor. The other factor is that in the secret negotiations between the United States and Iran that took place last summer, 
the U.S. finally agreed to something that the Iranians had insisted on for more than 15 years, which is that the U.S. accepted that even if there would be limitations to Iranian enrichment program, there would be enrichment taking place on Iranian soil. That was a red line of the Iranians and got it. Mm-hmm. Had that, um, I don't even want to call it a compromise or concession, but had that uh, gesture been agreed upon uh, already in 2005, we would be in a very different scenario right now. We insisted on a very unrealistic um, demand, and eventually we had to give it up. And once we gave it up, that opened up the negotiation. Well, we insisted on no enrichment, not limited no enrichment. enrichment. Exactly. Yes, exactly. And, and that wasn't going to happen. That that was a deal breaker. That was a deal breaker. Mm-hmm. We realized it. The Obama administration. Uh, recognize that they adjusted their policy to reality, and once that happened, it, it really opened up the way for um, the negotiations and the success of it that we've seen so far. Nothing is finished yet, unfortunately. They, things can still go wrong. There are other stumbling blocks, but this was one of the main stumbling blocks, and, and we overcame it. And the, the sad part is to think that sanctions got this done is, is really um, um, quite um, misleading because had the United States continued to insist on zero enrichment, there would not be any negotiations taking place at all right now, whether there were strong sanctions or no sanctions on Iran. Yes, well, I write about this in my book. It's very common to make false correlations like this. Uh, we do it all the time. Uh, you know, we think that one thing caused another, and then the media grabs a hold of it. And you, re- if you reinforce that relationship enough, uh, it, it, we think it's the truth. Uh, it's not that easy. Yeah. You know, these are complicated relationships. It's not to say the sanctions didn't contribute in some way to cooperation, but to what degree, uh, we can't tell. Uh, like, we can't exactly. tell a lot of things. We can't tell if human action to what degree affect climate change, uh, it's too complicated. And uh, we're never going to get to the bottom of that uh, answer directly. Uh, but we can observe what the a- end result is, what the outcomes are, and uh, and then uh, react and respond positively to those outcomes. Now, one thing that has puzzled me, and, and it's the very reason the nuclear program has been a stumbling block, is, um, is, the, is Iran's uh, ambitions to uh, move into nuclear weaponry. And, you know, dating back to... To the 80s, Iran has had a history, a very successful history of buying arms from North Korea, uh, whose nuclear weapons program is, is quite advanced. They do product demonstrations all the time, and they make no secret that they're uh, willing to sell this capability. So uh, my question is, is what, what's to stop Iran from just moving forward with their nuclear ambitions by uh, co-developing with North Korea? Um, uh, you know, I, I mean, they don't have to build their own. They can they can make a, a decision that corporations make every day, build or buy, right? Uh, so why not just buy from North Korea? Well, I think the, the, the obvious answer to that is because the U.S. intelligence actually says that the Iranians are moving towards creating the option of having a nuclear weapon, but they're not having a nuclear weapons program. They're moving towards a point in which if something goes drastically wrong in the region, they would have relatively short time to be able to build a bomb to protect themselves. But the decision to actually build a bomb has not been made, according to the Israeli, European, and American intelligence services. So that's another one of those things that happens every once in a while in the media that we talk about a weapons program, whereas the U.S. intelligence community has been quite consistent in saying that since 2003, we don't believe that they have had an active weapons program. What they're doing is that they're creating the option, and we don't like that they're creating the option, so we're trying to stop that. But stopping the option from stopping the bomb are two very different things. Well, let's talk about uh, that reality, the reality that they're making themselves nuclear weapon ready, that there's a readiness that they want. Uh, if, uh, if we said you can't have a bakery, they're saying that's okay. We'll have plants that produce flour, plants that produce butter, plants that produce eggs. <laughs> and, yeah. and if necessary, we'll... Uh, run trucks between the plants, and suddenly we'll have a bakery up and running overnight. Um, isn't that really what we're saying here? We're saying that they're, they want to make themselves ready so that there's a very short time to being able to get to a weapon should they need it. I think that is correct, and here's the thing. Why are they trying to make themselves ready rather than going for the option that you mentioned in your question, which is that they simply just go and buy it from the North Koreans? And the answer is that there is not... Um, a majority view or a consensus that they actually want the bomb. 
What they want is to have the, the door open for it. The reason why they may not want a bomb is because having a bomb actually adds tremendously to Iran's headaches and does very little to actually advance its security. Iran will become much bigger of a target if it actually has the bomb. It has seen that a state like Pakistan has nuclear weapons, but it's become increasingly a failed state and has done absolutely nothing to advance its security. But I think the point here is whether they make it or not, whether they make themselves nuclear weapon ready or not, they still have the option to purchase as well. So they really have two doors. They have two options. To a certain extent, I think that's correct. But even if you purchase a bomb, you really have to have the delivery system. There's a lot of other steps that are needed. Um, And for a state, just to have one bomb doesn't make a, a lot of sense. If you really want to have a nuclear deterrence, you need to have a much bigger program than that. I think the key point is this, though. If there is hesitation in their mind as to whether they want it or not, then we have to ask ourselves the question, what can be done to cause them not to want it? Well, you only want a weapon to protect yourself. If you don't feel any threat that you have to protect yourself from, you don't need the weapon. It's very logical, I think. Very logical. But unfortunately, it's not a logic that necessarily has been driving policy because much of our policy has been focused on the supply side of non-proliferation, meaning we've got to make sure that they don't get access to this. We've got to make sure that we weaken them here. We've got to make sure that they simply can't get the stuff. And what you're encouraging us to do is look at the motive, not the supply side, but look at the motive. What's motivating a country to want to invest a huge amount of money and, and human capital into building a bomb they don't really want exactly to look at the demand side what causes them to want it and is there anything we can do on that front perhaps there isn't but if that is a potential way of doing it it should be fully explored it should certainly not be ignored and unfortunately uh, or, or actually fortunately we may have some control over this variable because part or if not a lot of the reasons as to why the Iranians may want it is because of the sense of threat that they perceive from the United States. Yes, and I think that this gets back to uh, our exclusionary policy, our unwillingness to negotiate, to talk, to accept proposals, or even consider proposals, uh, continues to add to that threat. The worst thing you can do to someone who feels threatened is to isolate them, stop communicating to them, because all that does is it just builds up the anxiety that the threat is real. Uh, In the absence of fact... Uh, We're very good at uh, imagining things, and many of the things we imagine are not helpful. Uh, So uh, a lot of policy gets driven on the information we don't have. Now we're going to take our last break, but stay right where you are. We'll be back after these important messages from our sponsors. You're listening to the Costa Report. No matter what business you're in, what happens in Washington can make the difference between business success or failure. That's why understanding where government is headed is so important in today's competitive business environment. But where can you find experts who know firsthand the inner workings of our nation's capital? The American Program Bureau is your leading source for speakers whose experience offer unique insights into where U.S. policy is headed. Speakers like Seth Harris, former acting U.S. Secretary of Labor, Alyssa Mastromonaco, former White House Deputy Chief of Staff, and General Carl Eikenberry, former U.S. Ambassador to Afghanistan. For your next meeting or conference, contact the American Program Bureau at apbspeakers.com or 617-614-1600. That's apbspeakers.com. The American Program Bureau, making history one speech at a time. We're fortunate to have Scott Caraccioli with us to explain how the process of making sparkling wines influences a winemaker's approach to making a Chardonnay and Pinot Noir. Yeah, it's really a driving factor in terms of style and really kind of making it a little bit more old world. Um, we use all French oak, which is the same thing that we use in our sparkling wines. So I would imagine that someone who's not making sparkling wines will take a totally different approach. Yeah, it's a matter of viewpoint when it comes down to when you have a French winemaker making bubbles, you end up with a leaner, more European style of wine. To find out more about Caraccioli Wines, visit us at www.caracciolicellars.com or stop by our tasting room in downtown Carmel, California. That's Caraccioli Cellars, C-A-R-A-C-C. 
I-O-L-I, Cellars, where you have to spell it to drink it. Hi, I'm Andy, the produce manager at Ben Loman Market. We have over 40 produce items on sale for the special time of the year, including California garnet yams, 99 cents a pound, yellow onions, 89 cents a pound, salmon leaf satsuma tangerines, $1.89 a pound, and tender Brussels sprouts, $1.99 a pound. From Washington, we have large Fuji apples, 79 cents a pound, large Granny Smith apples, 97 cents a pound, and russet potatoes, 67 cents a pound. From Mexico, we have red or yellow bell peppers, $2.49 a pound, green beans, $1.99 a pound, and pineapples, Three forty-nine each. In organics, we are featuring garnet yams, a dollar twenty-nine a pound. Butternut squash, ninety-nine cents a pound. And organic sugar pie pumpkins, ninety-nine cents a pound. We have all your specialty items for your holiday, including Gizness Ranch pies. So come check us out at Ben Loman Market. Take an ordinary putty knife and scrape off the old wax ring. Place the new wax ring over the flange. Then line up the bolts with the bowl and gently set in place, making sure a proper seal is created with the flange and drain. Next. Um, Dad? Uh, yeah, sweetie. Is that a new plumbing manual? Oh, um, yeah, yeah, honey. We really need to get some new books. Right, um, do, do you want me to stop? Nah, I kind of want to know how it ends. Okay, tighten the bolts. Line up the flushing valve to the opening in the top of the bowl and secure the tank with a screwdriver and crescent wrench. <laughs> the smallest moments can have the biggest impact on a child's life. Take time to be a dad today. Call 877-4DAD-411 or visit fatherhood.gov. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. Welcome back to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and today our guest is Trita Parsi. Um, now, uh, Mr. Parsi, you make a compelling case in both of your books that the conflict with Iran is not cultural or religious, but it, it stems from other forces. So can you take a moment to explain that? Sure. Um, we talked earlier on about how easy it is to make false correlations uh, and I think one of those false correlations that have been made is that the conflict between Iran and the United States or Iran and Israel is ideologically motivated. But when you actually start scratching the surface, you see areas in which they've collaborated. You've seen times in which um, when their ideology was at a height, but at the same time behind the scenes they were collaborating. And there's been moments in which ideology has been at a very low level and they were in, in, involved in even more intense enmity. And you actually see that ideology does not explain it. What does explain it is geopolitical shifts, political calculations, motivations for security. And that's actually good news, because if this truly was an ideological battle, then there would be no solution. Because in ideological conflicts, one side wins, the other side gets defeated. It essentially is uh, inevitable that it would lead to a hot conflict. Right. There's no resolution if ideology is at the core. Exactly, because there's no draw in a fight between two ideologies. Mm -hmm. Whereas in a strategic conflict, there are opportunities for common interests, for collaboration, for coexistence. There, it's a much more flexible type of a conflict that is resolvable. And I do believe that not only is the U.S.-Iranian conflict resolvable, even, even the Iranian-Israeli one is resolvable. But it's not going to be resolvable if we assume that it is a conflict of a completely different nature. Believing that it is ideological in and of itself can make the conflict inevitable. Yes, yes. And, and also, uh, it, it causes us to not look at solutions, uh, which would be helpful, uh, because as you say, there is no solution to an ideological conflict. Um, looking at the bigger picture, um, what do you feel is the biggest misperception that Americans and, and our leaders have about Iran today? I think there's a Oh, there's so many different misperceptions um, that both Iranians have about the United States and Americans have about Iran. I think it's quite interesting that every American terrorist that I've met or read about uh, on the Internet who went to Iran just came back completely shocked by how uh, welcome 
he felt in Iran, how friendly the people were, how curious they were, and how eager they were to interact with an American. That the people there were very, very positive towards the American people, had absolutely no beef with them, while they could at the same time have problems with U.S. foreign policy, and incidentally, they had a lot of problems with the policies of their own government. But they have that ability to completely separate. And, and we have to remember that there's a large moderate contingent in Iran. Very large, moderate. In fact, the Iranian population tends to be uh, one of the most pro-American populations in the Middle East. Pro-American in the sense that they have a high respect for America, they have high respect for American values, for American people, while they may have major differences with U.S. foreign policy. And I want to emphasize, they also have differences with their own government's policy. So their ability to separate the people from government goes both ways. They do it for themselves, and they do it for others. Well, that sounds like us. <laughs> uh, in the time uh, we have remaining, I'd like to ask you a little bit about the National Iranian American Council. Tell us a little bit why you founded this organization and, and what's your charter? Well, uh, this actually came about as a result of 9-11. Uh, the Iranian American community has been in the United States for about 30, 40 years. It's a very successful, affluent community. They've truly lived the American dream, but they've kept a very, very low profile politically for various reasons, everything from the hostage crisis to just the general state of relations between the two countries. After 9-11, however, there was a realization that that's not a winning strategy and that the Iranian-American community wanted to collectively voice its, its utter disgust with the attacks and its rejection of terrorism, but it fail to find that collective voice. And that's when we decided that it was important to put together an organization that could help the community participate and contribute to the domestic, to the uh, political and democratic processes of the United States, while also enabling it to have a voice mm-hmm. in those uh, democratic processes. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, it's understandable after recent events to want to stay under the radar, but uh, very little change gets done by adopting that strategy. Exactly. Uh, now, I, now I know there's been some misunderstanding uh, about the council acting as a lobbyist group, but uh, you are not and have never acted as a lobbyist. Uh, uh, was this prompted by the fact that the council was opposed to economic sanctions? Do you think that's what drove that perception? I think, look, this is a tough city, and Iran is a very politicized issue in this city. When suddenly a group emerges that in a very short amount of time manages to be quite successful and get a very strong voice in the American media uh, and get a lot of respect on Capitol Hill and elsewhere, those who wanted to see the United States to go to war with Iran or who wanted to see more sanctions or just wanted to see a more confrontational policy uh, sensed a lot of threat from the activities and the arguments that we presented. Mm -hmm. And uh, one way of doing things in Washington, unfortunately, is not to meet the other side and address their arguments, but rather to spread rumors and make accusations, etc. It is unfortunately something that comes with the territory. We've survived it, and, you know, I think, frankly, I've grown stronger uh, from it. But it is, you know, one of those things that comes with the territory. I wish I could wish it away, but... Uh, politics doesn't work that way. Yes. Well, I think any time you form a group that uh, pro- uh, provides a voice for any uh, organization, any group of people, uh, you can get painted as a lobbyist group, and uh, that's not a nice way to paint anybody, uh, uh, and it makes uh, navigating in Washington, D.C. a little more challenging. Uh, but I do commend you for uh, sticking to your guns and uh, also helping to uh, get the, uh, the American-Iranian voice heard in Washington, D.C. Lastly, do you have a website where listeners today can go to get more information and catch your articles and blogs and where you you're appearing in the media? They can either go to my personal website, which is tritaparsi.com, T-R-I-T-A-P-A-R-S-I.com, or they can go to my organization's website, which is niacouncil, C-O-U-N-C-I-L.org. Well, that is all the time that we have today, but uh, before we say goodbye, I'd like to thank you for making the connection between the United States-Israel and Iranian relations and also the stability in the Middle East today. Thank you, Mr. Parsi. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. 
if your station is leaving us after this first hour and you have a question or a comment to make about our interview with Trita Parsi, you can email me at RebeccaCosta.com or drop me a note on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And if you miss the full interview with Trita Parsi or any of our other guests, you can download previous episodes of the Costa Report from our website, Apple iTunes, Podbean, and our YouTube channel. And while you're at our website, take a moment to check out the videos, the blogs, articles, and the commentaries by uh, people that you know, folks like Richard Branson and Trudy Styler, Donald Trump, E.O. Wilson. Our, our web team, I have to say, they do a great job of keeping our website chocked full of current content, including a calendar which shows uh, when I will be speaking uh, in an area that you, you may be located. You, you can see me live. <laughs> so be sure to click on the pull-down menu at the top of the homepage at RebeccaCosta.com. It's, it's easy to remember. My name, RebeccaCosta.com. And there are pull-down menus at the top of the page. And be sure you check out the uh, the lovely content that the web team keeps uh, current there. And while you're enjoying that, that information, we've posted on the website. Uh, make sure you pick up your copy of The Watchman's Rattle. Just click on the image of the book and it'll take you right over to the ordering page. Uh, the Watchman's Rattle is the only book. Book that shows how complexity over regulation more data than at any other time in human history has produced gridlock and an alarming confusion between empirical facts and unproven beliefs. And you heard a lot about that today. So get your copy of The Watchman's Rattle. Do it now. Bookstores are completely sold out of the first editions. Uh, and we uh, here at the Costa Report have very few left in stock. Uh, all proceeds from the book sales go toward keeping quality programming like the interview just listened to with Trita Parsi on the air. If you're one of uh, millions of Americans who want more in depth, well-rounded coverage by the media. Well, then we hope you do your part. If your station is leaving us after this hour, we have a very special guest next week who unfortunately wasn't able to confirm by airtime today. So please check your local station for our upcoming guests or visit our website for the guest's biography and the topics that they'll be speaking about. Rest assured, when they keep the guest under wraps, even even from the host, even from me, it means the guest is an important voice. So I hope you'll join us once again next week on the only news program that puts policy ahead of politics. Now stay tuned for another hour of Straight Talk Radio. You're listening to the Costa Report. again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the voice america business channel for more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest please visit voiceamericabusiness.com the voice america talk radio network is the worldwide leader in live internet talk radio visit voiceamerica.com the views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the voice america talk radio network it's staff and management.